definitely take action, but I guess trust but verify. Don't be afraid to step in there, but do remain curious about all aspects of the process. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey guys, it is Sarah Larby and welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Today's guest, Britta Hild, is a real estate investor who unfortunately didn't have it as easy when she bought her first property. And I think it's important to see the good, the bad, the horrors of real estate investing and what it can be. I mean, it can be amazing and, and she's definitely done well at this point, but when she first started, there were a lot of things that she learned along the way. And this episode provides some of those insights and some tips so that you can learn and not make the same mistakes or go through some of the same experiences. And I, I want to first, I want to thank Britta for being able to share and be open and honest about what can happen for some deals that might not turn out in the exact way that you were hoping. And so I think it is really awesome that she was able to come on and talk about her experiences and how she grew from that and what she's learned from it. And I think it's important for you out there because if you're starting or you're not too sure where to start or how to start, at the end of the day, there are things that can happen that can go wrong, but Ultimately, I think it's better to just start and learn and then go from there because how you're going to learn the most, it's not going to be by listening to these podcasts. It's not going to be by reading books, but it's going to be by actually taking action and doing it. That is how most of us learn the most and exponentially grow in comparison to somebody that might have analysis paralysis and reads and reads and reads and then never takes action. The person that's going to take action, even though there might be some mistakes along the way, is going to be much further ahead. And with even two properties, two multifamily properties, she was able to take care of her mom when her mom needed her, not have to worry about paying the mortgages. And so it's actually a very inspiring story because she really truly shares the good, the bad, and the ugly of her story in real estate investing. So without further ado, let's welcome Britta to the show. Welcome to the show, Britta. Hi, thanks for having me, Sarah. You're welcome. You're welcome. So before we get into what you're currently doing, how did you get started in real estate investing in the first place? I guess I'm an accidental real estate investor when I really think about it. Like many people, I did buy personal real estate, just part of a relationship with my first house when I was in my 20s. I never thought about investment real estate in, in any way. My parents did have two rental properties back in the late 80s that were pretty much a disaster. So I didn't have a family history of seeing that as being a good investment. Nonetheless, life happened. My marriage broke up. We sold our house and all of a sudden I found myself sort of temporarily living at my parents house which wasn't the situation that I thought I'd find myself in around that time I reconnected with a friend of mine in grade school 
over Facebook. I hadn't seen her literally since grade eight or spoken to her. We sort of became friends again. And she had a house downtown that basically was full of roommates. She lived there herself, but with the roommates, she was able to more or less cover all the costs for the house. I actually became one of her roommates. So again, this was a very different situation. And because she traveled a lot, I ended up doing a lot of, I guess, property management, if you want to call it, if there were issues at the house, that type of thing. So we quickly realized that we both wanted to do more real estate. And uh, we thought it'd be a great idea if I buy a similar house down the street. And as it turned out, there was a five unit that was listed uh, in the area. So the thinking naive investor was that if a bunch of roommates was good, then a five unit sort of mini apartment building would be even better. Little did I know what that entailed, uh, but <laughs> I did go forward with it. And uh, to be honest, I don't know if I would have done it had I known all the pitfalls or been in a position to analyze everything that could go wrong. But because I knew nothing, I just forged ahead with it. And I guess it's true that you do figure out whatever you have to figure out when, when it gets thrown at you. So that's the short synopsis of how I got into uh, investing. That was back in 2011. So 2011, and where was the property? Uh, it's downtown Toronto. It was fortuitous at the time. It was probably the second worst house street, which is what you're supposed to do. But again, I didn't know that. And so I basically bought this property. It was fully tenanted with a very interesting group of tenants that I quickly <laughs> learned. It became almost a full-time job in terms of managing them. So well, Okay, so that was your first one. And what have you been doing since then? So my roommate, the one that I was living with at the time, we decided to purchase another property in Hamilton. We were excited about Hamilton. This was 2013. It seemed to be up and coming. Uh, there seemed to be a lot happening there. We both liked the urban nature and the city aspect of Hamilton. So basically we found, I guess it was a former rooming house of, of some sort. So we basically purchased that and we've turned that into a not really a student rental, they're separate apartments. It's, it's basically a triplex and that's been really well. And since then, basically those two apart, those two units have kept those two uh, properties have kept me pretty busy. I've also just been doing other stuff, but now at this point, I'm really looking at sort of moving to the next stage in, in real estate. Uh, but of course, now I know all the pitfalls. So I think I get the analysis paralysis that many newbies get. Ironic, I feel like I'm back at the beginning. So that's, that's really interesting. So you bought two and how has your life changed since you've become a real estate investor? There's definitely been a lot of crazy stories, things that I never could have imagined, but I did work through them. Despite all the problems that came up, I have to say, I did realize the benefits pretty quickly of being a real estate investor, even when you don't know what you're doing and a lot of things go wrong. Like for instance, my mom unfortunately got really sick. It meant I was able to basically quit my job and look after her full time until she passed away earlier this year. And that whole time my mortgage was being paid, I was able to keep my house, things like that. So I, I think there really is potential. There certainly are pitfalls, but there, it really does work. And I, I have the multi-unit nature, I think, to thank for that. If you have just one property and something goes wrong, it could really be devastating. But with the multi-unit nature, I have to say, no matter how many things were going wrong, there was always income coming in. Then ideal, but there was still always income coming in, which is a huge, uh, really powerful thing when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think that is sometimes people will look at HGTV and they just say, oh, you know, like it looks so easy. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And it's not as easy as the TV makes it look like, and the problems are definitely real when it involves your money, your stress, your time, 
And there's things, there's pitfalls for sure. And there's things that you learn from that. And so can you walk us through some of the struggles that you've had and how you've overcome them and what you've learned from them? Okay, so the first one is a, is a big one. I'll try and summarize it. It goes back to what you hear on real estate podcasts all the time about making sure you have a good team in place. I did not because I didn't realize that I needed a team. But I think for any new investors, no matter what your trepidation is, I think that would be the first part to have a team in place that has real estate investment experience. So basically what happened to me, I found the property, put in the offer. I went through three lawyers before it closed. First lawyer, I didn't realize it was recommended by the realtor at the time, had a disciplinary record against him. We got to the point where the lender was almost on board in the period of time where you have to secure these things. And then at the last moment, they realized this and they wouldn't deal with him. So all of a sudden, I'm in the position of having to find a new lawyer. Tried a second lawyer. He didn't exactly work out either. At this point, the mortgage broker had found a different lender. First one just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Actually, that second lawyer brought in quite a few arguments with the lender, and the lender basically said they wouldn't deal with him. So none of this had anything to do with me. I was trying to take the advice I was given, which in single-family purchases, it always worked. The realtor had advise who they use as a lawyer, use them, the deal closes, you get your keys and that's that. But this was turning out to be very different. Finally, I got a very experienced real estate lawyer on board. Everything seemed to be going well. At that point, however, we had missed the requisition date, which I wasn't aware of. But if you look on an agreement of purchase and sale, there's a date whereby you have to get your financing in place, which is typical for when you buy your single family. I had that done. But there's also a lot of uh, verbiage in there about permits, looking at all those things. Because we had been so busy trying to get the financing and all these lawyer switches, basically none of that permit research had been done. So by the time it was done, we were well past the requisition date. And basically it turned out there was a permit from, I think, the early 90s that had never been closed. The lawyer, I didn't find out about this basically until the closing meeting at the office to sign the paperwork. Now, in retrospect, I don't know what more really could have been done because if I hadn't closed, there's definitely severe ramifications for that. And the lender, I also realized at the last moment was about to not fund the deal because they found out about this permit. The lawyer, I think through his experience, was able to basically get the lender to fund the deal. I remember walking into the office for the meeting. I thought I just signed papers and there's a screaming match going on between the lawyer and the lender. So everything did get funded, but I didn't quite understand what that meant in terms of an open building permit. Um, I bought the property, took over tenant leases, all that stuff, got to know that, got my closing letter, put it away. And then a couple of years later, when I wanted to sell a new realtor at that checked with the city and said, oh, do you know you have a permit on your property that's open? I said, no, I don't. Pull out all my paperwork. Sure enough, there's that document in there. So that basically opened up a whole can of worms. Even though the property was legally subdivided based on a committee of adjustment decision from the 90s, the building permits were pulled, the construction was done, but it was just never closed off. And so that permit remains open. At this point, because other modifications are done to the property, uh, none of that's grandfathered in. So basically everything has to be brought up to the current 2018 standard. So the good part about that <laughs> is that I've gone through that process, which was very arduous and it's taken about two and a half years. I have a modern up-to-date building. There were issues with soundproofing, many other issues that 
made the building not great. Those have all been rectified. So that's definitely a good point. The bad point is it cost a lot of money when I was least expecting it and also a lot of disruption. Luckily, I have great tenants now. So they were very cooperative about shuffling around, about having contractors here, all that type of stuff. But that was something that I never could have imagined or dreamed of happening. And again, it's just something that you just try to work through and I seem to be through it. So that was the big learning curve. <laughs> and you're still open to buying more and, and continuing. So I would say good on you because a lot of people would have said, never again, I quit. <laughs> I hate real estate. <laughs> The fact that we've had a booming real estate market and the house is in downtown Toronto, when I do the math in terms of appreciation, even if there is a pullback, but yet it's still difficult. That money is on paper, whereas your expenses for renoing, those are real. Those have to come from somewhere. So in the long run, I think it's a blessing that I didn't sell the property because the area has really experienced a development boom, even in the years. But I, I don't know if I was talking about a property that was in an area that was economically depressed. I think that would be a whole different discussion. Absolutely. So there's a lot of things that you and I could learn from that. I mean, not you. I mean, you've already learned them, but just people <laughs> that, are, that are listening can learn. I think that the first one is to, to build your team of solid, solid professionals <laughs> and even from your realtor. If your realtor is not an investor and used to working with investors, there is just so many realtors out there. There's some great ones, some amazing ones. And then there's some that are literally, you know, barely understanding anything about investing in real estate and their, their realtors somehow. And so there's great realtors. There's not so great realtors. It's hard to figure out who they are unless you get a referral. So I would say referrals are huge from other investors or just make sure that they, they've got some properties themselves in the area that you're looking for and local ones. And so if that realtor, like for me, I specifically pick my realtors based on the fact that they're investors. Um, if I'm looking at a different area, I will get a referral from another investor that's purchasing in that area. And then what happens is they usually will have a good team in place of their own and a lawyer that's used to dealing with more complicated closes or more complicated deals but it sounds like you you got yourself out of it and you're definitely ahead and i'm sure you've learned a lot of things but looking back for you what are some of the things that you would say to the listeners to to really be careful for or to, to pay special attention to i think for starters do your own due diligence and that's hard to know what to do when you don't know what to do when you're when you're not familiar with that field but at the most basic level, I think I would probably, for any future purchases, I know I would call the city myself or go there. And City of Toronto has a planning department. You can go there. It might take an afternoon or a morning to do so, but you can give an address. And if it, I, I think my realtor actually did it. I had to sign. But you can find out right there whether there are problems with the property from a bylaw perspective or a zoning perspective or that type of thing. So I think there are real benefits. I think that so many properties in Toronto are illegal, either from a zoning perspective or a building perspective. Right. Two don't always drive. I learned that as well. Um, but for instance, if you have a fiveplex that's not zoned, that's in a single family, that's going to be very expensive and difficult to rectify. A lot of the building things might actually be easier to fix. So I think at a very base, just familiarize yourself with the zoning, especially for Maltese, what is required to have a triplex? Yeah. 
that's legal. And then it's actually not that difficult to find out what you need in terms of building requirements. It's usually ceiling heights, setbacks, parking. Some of that can be changed with variances, but again, that's a whole other process that can be expensive to go through. Um, so at the very basic part, I would, I would just familiarize, uh, ask that investors familiarize themselves with their city zoning um, and just get a general idea. Even go down to the city hall and just talk to someone. You'll find out a lot that way. And the other thing is just read through every single document. Read through that agreement of purchase and sale. I was guilty of not doing that. And if you have any questions, ask. Specifically when it comes to dates, because these are contracts and those dates do have meaning. And uh, if there's anything that's not clear about what needs to be done by a certain date, that's where you could get in touch with your lawyer and even read those contracts before you put in an offer, just that you're familiar and you know what to look for. Absolutely. That's really, really great advice. The other thing I would say is, because I, I get that question a lot is, there's this triplex, but it's technically not legal. Should I do it? And my answer is always no. Don't ever buy anything illegal because the problem is, especially as a newbie, you're going to go in, you're going to take the property. And if it's just, let's just say, for example, it's zoned as a single family property and it's a duplex or it's a triplex. At any point in time, you may be asked to bring it back to its original use. And so your cash flow that you were calculating on a duplex or triplex, well, if it's not legal, then first of all, the lenders will never take those three units or those two units. They'll take whatever it's legally zoned as to look at the financials to see if they're going to loan it. But at any time you may be paying a lot of money to turn it back into the proper, whatever it's zoned for, or you're going to be fighting with the city back and forth and you're going to have a headache on your hands. But in addition to that, you don't want to put a tenant in a non-legal unit because of the landlord tenant board, like you don't just stand a chance. Like you really, really have to be careful with that piece, in addition to everything else that could go wrong, is just having a tenant that is in a legal unit and you don't have a leg to stand on if they don't pay, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, technically, you have a lot less ability to do anything that you want when it comes to that. So great advice. I would say non-conforming is different than illegal. Non-conforming, it was legal at some point in time, but rules and regulations changed over time and it's grandfathered in or whatever. And then to me, that's okay, right? If you were to redo it now, it might not have the same specs, but back then it still met whatever the, the rules, regulations, codes were. And just keep away from anything illegal. Like you guys do not want to be in that mess at all. So thank you for pointing that out. That is a great insight, Britta. So then you're doing that and you've got your second property. Tell us a little bit about that, your second property. Um, yeah, the second property in Hamilton, we decided to focus on students, but more mature students, so master's students or PhD students. So the property is more in the downtown area, simply because we love the housing stock, detached, solid brick, well-built housing in great areas, mature trees, close to services, close to transit, close to amenities. So it's not in the MAC area, it's in the downtown area. And I, I think our contractor thought we were crazy because we were renovating this house to a fairly high standard. It had some beautiful historical features. We basically restored those. We made it modern. We brought all the electrical up to code, got rid of all the knob and tube, which was a requirement. So that's something else that uh, new investors should be aware of. And it's fine to get a house with knob and tube, but just be aware that there is an immediate time frame that that has to be remedied by, usually from insurance. They'll give you a few months to do it. 
certainly don't, they won't insure a house that has knob and tube. So that is cost that has to be factored in. Nonetheless, this house turned out really, really great. Our contractor kept saying, this is Hamilton, this is Hamilton. What are you guys doing? So I think a rental looks like garbage uh, was still alive and well at that time frame. However, we had great success with it. Really great tenants. We've had tenants from around the world. There's people coming to Hamilton that we found out for co-ops, for work exchanges, work permits, PhDs, master's programs, all that type of thing. So it's been a really great experience in that sense. And it's an old house, so there's been quirky issues in terms of renovating plaster walls. There must have been about 10 layers of sort of the gram of wallpaper with the floral print on it, things like that. So we worked through that. It was a lot of work to renovate it. And, but more or less, it's, it's definitely worked well. And it's really, I guess, helped make sort of urban real estate my, my favorite choice. I know a lot of people have success in suburban areas. It's just not a market that I know much about. And I just really, like, I prefer the urban areas myself just because I feel at home there. And uh, I think there's just a lot of potential to sort of build good quality housing there. Okay, that's really interesting. So not as bad as the first one. <laughs> so the second one was good, okay. And, uh, and then you tell, now you've got some students. What's your tenant screening process? Like, how do you go about finding the tenants, screening them, putting them into the rentals? So... I'm pretty particular, and when I heard, uh, I think I heard something about your tenant screening process, and it sounded similar. I think you might even be a bit more thorough in some ways, and I'm looking at ways at increasing that. Unfortunately, it's always been a point of frustration. I think given the laws in Ontario, it's there have been tenants that I've wanted to almost take a chance on, but unfortunately, I think we just have to ensure that we get the best possible tenant in terms of this fit for the building, in terms of being able to pay for it, things like that. So basically we put an ad in, always request that the person call us if they're interested, which is amazing how many times that doesn't happen. Someone will send a response to the ad saying, I'm interested. I say, okay, please give me a call. And then you never hear from them. I'd say about 80% never call. So when someone does call, just try and get a sense of where they're at, what they're looking for to see if it's a good fit been through it too many times where no matter what you say you can say shared bathroom but then people will still come and see it and be like well I thought it was a private bathroom it's like well the ad said a shared bathroom so in that sense it's a waste of both of our time so that's why I really want to speak to people and just describe the housing exactly so that they also know what they're going to see and they're not going to be wasting their time and then you can also get a sense of whether they'd be a good fit or not in terms of showings especially in Hamilton because we're coming from far away we try and block the mall in an afternoon, for example. And uh, we always request that potential people that are looking at it, that they text that morning to confirm that they're coming. So it's an additional step just to see how responsive they are and how the communication might be. I think it's like when you're first dating, like the behavior at the beginning, (laughs) if it's not good, it's probably not going to get any better along the way. So that's really crucial is to have tenants that you can communicate with well because we just want this, this to be a smooth, long-term relationship. In terms of flexibility, tend to be somewhat flexible, especially in the student demographic. I've always gone by the thinking that if someone doesn't want to be there, I don't want to force them to be there and hold them to a lease. Having said that, there are some benefits to having long-term leases, at least a year from a bank perspective or refinance perspective. However, I think society in general and young people, especially millennials, are 
going that path where they may be going to school, they may be getting jobs in different areas. So I think it is important to recognize that demographic and what they need. Where should I invest with your host, Sarah Larvey? We'll be right back. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself, and she works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now, and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders, and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis, it was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-208. 6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. Back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm glad that you brought us. I think students are a little different than families as tenants, but because the landlord tenant rules in this are so geared towards tenants. We really have to protect yourself. So I like that you're you're having different steps that you're putting in place to make sure that you're not just letting anybody that can fog a mirror come into the house. Personally, I actually like to, to give the tenants like three. So on Kijiji, as an example, when I post an ad, I actually don't even give them my number or anything to reach me because I like to have the control. And I ask them for like three different questions to have answers to. So the first one is please provide a little bit about you and a phone number for me to be able to reach you. The second one might be please indicate the number of pets and then whatever third one. And 
that just on its own allows me to screen out like so many people because if you can't take directions, <laughs> you can't come in my house. I'm sorry. But that's like actually step one of five that I do. And then on the phones, I actually have another type of screening process. So whatever your guys, if you're listening and, and you've got a process, just make sure that you have a process, right? You don't want the first person to give you money and that says, I want to come and I want to give you like six months up front. <laughs> we don't need it that badly because at the end of the day, we're not in a market where there's a shortage of tenants. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're, we're doing well that way. There's definitely not a vacancy. Well, there is a vacancy issue, but it's a, uh, it's a very low vacancy issue. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that you, you have a process. I think that's important. And especially with your time too, you're, you're selecting tenants to come through on a specific time and day in the afternoon. You don't want to be, showing one student or one prospective family the house and you're driving all the way there to just have a no show because that happens often as well (laughs) yeah exactly yeah the other benefit of having i guess multiple tenants is that you can put some of those processes in place and then it's easier to say to people that this is the process i if i vary it for one person that's not fair to Mm -hmm. tenants or future tenants so everybody has the same process I think that's really the only fair way to do it. Absolutely. That's really well said. And the other thing, and you said something that's really interesting that the banks want to see a one year lease. And I find that very unfortunate because the banks, the banks don't really understand how this residential tenancies act works. Mm -hmm. And if I can help it by any means, I'm just doing a month to month. Because at the end of the day, it's not that the tenants can leave whenever they want. They really can. There's nothing that actually holds them to it, whether it's a five-year lease, a one-year lease, or month-to-month lease. I mean, really, ultimately, they can stay. And unless they're not paying, it's going to be hard for us to, to justify them leaving. Again, there's always exceptions, but for the most part, they can stay. And so for me, I'm like, I'm not going to sign a one-year lease because it, it hurts me more than it will hurt them if we need to part ways. And all of my leases first started for the first couple of years. I'm like, oh, let's do one year lease and this and that. And now I really push back against back to the bank. And I, and I talk to my mortgage broker and I really push back to make sure that she does that same thing back to the bank and really explains the fact that it's not in their best interest as well. If a tenant's not paying, you don't want them to have a year lease. If you need to do something for whatever reason, like you're the one that's stuck with the one year. So I refuse to do anything more than month to month unless I really have to by the lender, but most of them at this point now seem to understand. Not all of them, but some of them. Yeah, that's what I found with real estate investing in general. There's so many different branches to it and a lot of the rules don't at all coincide. So the bank's wishes versus what's reality under the LTV, city zoning even versus what the fire codes are. There's just so many discrepancies in there and it makes it really difficult as a a layperson, beginner investor to sort through it all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're buying the property and you're getting the financing from the first time, that's where you might be forced to do the one year. But after that, I mean, once you've got the the financing, your tenants are moving out, month to month is the way to go all the time. (laughs) Especially in this type of market where the rents have been increasing. I mean, I think you'd be at a detriment to have a long-term tenant. It might be convenient, but the rents are just increasing at a level that uh, you can't capture that if you, if you don't have tenant turnover. Exactly. And sometimes I hear, I want a tenant to be there for like 10 years and 15 years. I want to find that like tenant that 
I hear this a lot, right? So I, I want to find a tenant that wants to live there for like their forever home. For me, I look for like two to five years. If they want to stay a little bit longer than that, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be so behind on market rent at some point. I'm like, yeah, I can't stay here forever. And so I really, truly look for those tenants as the ones I, I prefer. Again, I'm going to be careful not to discriminate, but the ones I prefer and that I usually choose are the ones that are going to be buying their own house at some point and they have a two to five year goal because you're going to, you're going to need to jack the rents back to market at some point so that you can recoup some of your money. Yeah. And I find shorter tenancies better too, in the sense of maintaining the house because there is wear and tear and it's just, it's impossible to fix a lot of things properly with a tenant in place. So even if you take a month between tenancies, just to go in and make sure that property is showing and serves the next tenant as well as possible. I think that's worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Any, any other tips or anything else that you want to let the listeners know about? I guess I've, I've dealt with so many different income demographics, even in this relatively short journey. And I think part of this affordable housing issue, I've done a lot of thinking about it. I think there really is a market for more affordable housing. And I just wish there was, I guess, a different system in terms of tenant support for that demographic. So what I've found is if someone does find a property with tenants in place, because when I speak to other real estate investors, they'll find a building that has existing low rent tenants, and they're worried about that. I guess there is a possibility to take those buildings and keep those tenants with proper management. So I think that's another tip is See, if you're buying a house with existing tenants, you just have to be aware of the amount of interaction you might have with those tenants and the style of interaction. Older tenants will want that personal interaction by phone. Having said that, I found some really wonderful, hardworking people that maintain my property to like a wonderful level of sweeping and cleaning and all that type of stuff. But they're not going to be texting. They're not going to be sending you e-transfers. They're going to have a check ready that you might have to go pick up sort of thing because they want that social interaction versus if you have younger students or, or that demographic, it'll probably be more hands off, but there is higher turnover in that sense. So I think just really be aware of what you're buying, what the tenant demographic is. If you want to change it, what's required to do that, because that can be a, a long process. And that'll really dictate what your daily day looks like to a large extent, whether you're getting phone calls all the time, or if they're higher end tenants, they do expect service right away if something goes wrong. So you need to have the maintenance contacts and all that in place in order to get that type of work done. So I think the best advice I heard uh, was years ago, probably at Rain, I believe when I was a member there about how tenants are your customers. And I've always tried to take that approach, even for the tenants that were less than stellar, I really always try to take that approach. These are people and they need housing and mm -hmm. try to take that customer service approach, no matter how unreasonable they were and talk to them. And a lot of times the relationship actually uh, improved. And I think that's really important because I, I don't like the rhetoric out there about the bad landlord and the, the bad tenant sort of thing. I think there's certainly extremes. There's bad landlords and bad tenants, but there's a lot of us in between that are trying to do a good job. And I think there's a lot of tenants that probably just get stuck with bad landlords and that's unfortunate down our name too. Yeah, you're, you're right. So I think ultimately there are customers, we have to treat them well and we have to treat them fairly. And you're right, like there's a lot of bad landlords that give us a bad name. There's a lot of bad tenants that give tenants a bad name. 
We just want as good landlords to be paired up with good tenants. So I think it's important to treat them fairly consistently, communicate with them. The other thing I I would want to say is one of the things that they do or have to do is pay us on time. And right now, everyone I've got is sending me e-transfers, but there's other ways that you can get paid, right? So you can get paid with post-dated checks. Again, you can suggest it to your tenants, but if they give you post-dated checks and they want them back, you actually have to give them, them back their checks, but you could get that, or you can have them do a direct deposit. One of the things that I do, because I don't personally want to have my home address on any leases, but legally you have to put an address. So what I do is I have a address from UPS, which reads like a suite number. So it's not like a PO box, but essentially it is a box. And that is the address that I put. So if ever they need to send paperwork or for whatever reason, serve any notice, that is the address they have. I like to keep that piece separately. So that's just a one piece of advice that I would say. And the other thing is the tenants have to find a way to get you your money. So if you want to go out there and drive, that's great, but you don't have to either, right? So you can have it them send it to you, to your UPS box or whatever, whoever you decide to use for that. Please not your home address. You can have them give you posted checks. You can have them give you an e-transfer, whatever works for them, obviously communicate, but it also has to work for you as well because it's a business. And as you scale up, I mean, I'm saying you as a general you, as, as people scale up, it's just important to have processes and systems in place so that you don't have to make it a whole second full-time job, right? Mm-hmm. This has been wonderful. Again, they only work with a certain demographic. I know I try to get my dad to send an e-transfer and it's like, it seems like it's more hassle than it's worth. But for obviously a millennial demographic, I mean, they wouldn't even know what a check is for the most part. So e-transfer works very well. Absolutely. Yeah. Just make sure that you give them more than one option. Yeah. Good. So Britta, the next part of this podcast is our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and you're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Okay. Question number one, your favorite real estate investing book ever? I'd have to say it's multiple books, but if you go on the Bigger Pockets website, they have very specific real estate investing books. And many of those, even though they are US based, they do contain sort of everything we need to know as landlords. And I found those to be really useful and they're available in ebook or as audio downloads as well. Perfect. Awesome. Good. Number two, what is your favorite podcast? I have to say, I love the local ones like yours, the rock star guys, uh, your life, your terms. They have one. There's the breakthrough real estate podcast. I love the GTA information. I do also like bigger pockets for a general mm-hmm. overview. Awesome. Yeah answers for every question sorry (laughs) no that's awesome number three what do you do for fun aside from real estate well i do love real estate so i I find the real estate meetups are fun but in addition to that i really i enjoy traveling especially to warm places and just hiking outdoor activities that type of thing okay all right awesome number four if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow how would you start again Probably an answer that you've heard many times from a real estate investment perspective. I think it would have to be using the skills I've gained uh, in terms of managing properties, finding a money partner for joint venture to get a new property, probably also try and pick up some property management contracts and do that for other investors and get back on my feet again that way. Okay, great. So if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? In the realm of the GTA, I think that would be difficult um, with the way property prices are. 
I think, again, maybe if they could partner with someone. The other aspect is that what I learned, sometimes bigger pays off than smaller. With a multi-unit, the bank won't look at your income as much. They'll look at what money the property brings in. So you actually can qualify for a much bigger property than you would if you're just trying to finance it on your own. So with $50,000, it might not be enough for the GTA, but if you can find a triplex or a fourplex, maybe outside of the city that has good rental potential, and then also get the rents counted in, that could actually get you into the game. Okay. All right. Great advice. So Brenna, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more about you? I don't have a specific real estate website, but my email, I'm happy to converse with anyone that way. It's just my name, B-R-I-T-T-A dot H-I-L-D at gmail.com. I am also on Instagram and Facebook, but that's more just travel photos. So <laughs> it's made that, that have been made possible by real estate. Awesome. Any last final words of advice or any tips that you would like to let the listeners know about? I would say, like so many other podcasts say, definitely take action, but I guess trust but verify. Don't be afraid to step in there, but do remain curious about all aspects of the process and don't be afraid to make random phone calls and ask questions. It's amazing what you find out when you call different professionals. So I think that's a key part of it. Just don't be shy to do that because that's the only way you're going to find out things that you might not have even considered and that can make a huge difference in your investing journey. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Britta, for being on Where Should I Invest? I really, really appreciate you sharing your insights, your struggles, the things that you've learned from your investments and We hope to see you at different meetup groups and investor networking groups. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great time. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.